The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 17. <clears throat> Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We begin with that reading from Exodus, which takes place after Moses had called, they'd been called by God to lead God's chosen people from their slavery in Egypt to the land God had promised to Abraham's descendants. But on the way, they stopped at the base of a mount called Sinai. And Moses somehow heard, in what Exodus says others heard as though it were thunder, Moses somehow heard the summons of God to the top of the mountain. And so leaving the people under the leadership of his brother Aaron and taking his young protege, Joshua, with him, at least partway, Moses climbed up to the mountain top. At which point, Exodus says, the glory of the Lord settled on the mountain. And what that glory looked like to Moses and Joshua and also from down below was a cloud, which was actually not just cloudy, but also fiery. And six days passed. You may want to remember that. And then on the seventh day, the cloud spoke. You may want to remember that. And what it spoke with was the voice of the holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty calling Moses into the cloud, into God's presence, into God's gloriously holy, holy almightiness. God, says Exodus, gave Moses two tablets of stone upon which were written by God's own hand, says Exodus, the Ten Commandments. But God gave Moses a lot more than that as well, which ended up taking 40 days in that fiery cloud as God defined for Israel what living in a covenant relationship with the Lord their God who had delivered them from bondage in Egypt would look like when now very soon they would live in the land of the free. As it turns out, however, down below, down off the mountain, God's chosen people had somehow come to the conclusion that something bad must have happened to Moses up there on the mountaintop because he'd been up there a long time. Plus, nobody had seen him pack any meals. Plus, I mean, how, really, how safe can cloudy fires actually be? 
So they started feeling vulnerable out there in the wilderness. And so they brought all their items of family gold to Aaron, and from it he fashioned a golden calf, something they could see. And then the people said, Here, O Israel, is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Here is what will protect us and bless us and make us great again. Here in this gold is our security. And the party started, at which point Moses and Joshua returned from the mountaintop with those commandments detailing how to live in covenant relationship with the Lord their God, who had chosen them as God's own, only to find them now worshiping a God of their own choosing. And Moses smashed the tablets of stone, symbolizing a covenant relationship broken before it had even ever been entered into. The first law of the smashed covenant, of course, was the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. But laws, it turns out, that first law and all of God's laws inevitably do a better job of exposing sinners than saving them from their sins. Years later, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, not long before he died, told the people that one day God would raise up another prophet like him who would come from among them and who would speak the word of the Lord to him. When he comes, listen to him, Moses said. Listen to him. And then Moses then climbed up another mountain where, save for God, he died. God, says Deuteronomy, handled the arrangements for what turned out to be a private service. Time passed, years passed, generations passed, and other prophets did come. And as prophets do, they spoke for God to people, telling them of the Lord their God, who alone was to be worshipped. But again and again, the prophets over and again were not listened to but rejected as God's people again and again showed a prevailing and prideful preference for the ways and means of their own gods rather than the gods of the prophets. And again and again and again, those gods of their own were, in one way or another, made of gold. Gods that money could buy. Gods that money could be. And so, for example, when the prophets commanded, as they did, that the poor be cared for, they were rejected, as what had emerged was a booming economy, thriving at the expense of the poor. One of the prophets whom history would remember as the greatest of them, the prophet of prophets, the one who kind of represented all prophets, was Elijah, who confronted the exploitive and opulent godlessness of the nation under the rule of a couple of pieces of work, Ahab the king and Jezebel the queen. Jezebel in particular was evil and not one bit interested in being commanded to by this upstart and loudmouth prophet, so she placed a bounty on his head. And the great prophet Elijah, in what turned out not to be his greatest moment, fled. He ran away from her, ran for 40 days and 40 nights until he came, not coincidentally, to be sure, to the very same mountain where Moses had met God. And Elijah was discouraged because he knew, he just plain knew, that he was the very last one in the whole country worshiping the true God anymore, as everybody else had sold their spiritual souls to gods of lavish wealth 
and or political clout. And Elijah wanted to die there on the mountain, but he didn't die. Instead, he was miraculously fed. And then he heard a strong wind rush down the mountain. And after that, he felt an earthquake shake the mountain. After that, he saw fire come down upon the mountain. And then after that, then next, he heard and felt absolutely nothing. There was sheer silence. Until then, Elijah heard the silence speak to him. I don't know, I don't want to be all weird, but I think sometimes I can hear silence speaking better than some other things speak. What the silence said in Moses' case was, you are not alone. Others, in Elijah's case, others remain faithful too, and your work is not done. Keep the faith. Others will follow in faith after you. Years later, Elijah's funeral arrangements, as they were, were also handled by God. As says Second Kings, a chariot of fire swung low from heaven, coming for to carry him home. Time passed, years passed, generations passed, other faithful prophets did come. But the covenant relationship God fully desired with God's people didn't. The prophets, it turned out, were again and again bold in confronting what was, but they had not so much luck changing what was. So some of the prophets began to speak prophetic words with prophetic gazes, now gazing beyond what was to what would be. The prophet Jeremiah, for example, saying that what would be would be a new covenant in which a new relationship would be established between God and God's chosen one. And in that covenant, the desires of God, the love of God, the laws of God, which they were ever rebelling against, would not be written on stone, but would rather be written on hearts. As people at long last would know God and would come to know that their sins, the toxic output of stone-hard hearts, their sin was forgiven. When that day is ushered in, the prophet Malachi promised, the prophet Elijah would come again to be one of the ushers. Time passed, years passed, generations passed, but the hope remained what was, as chronicled by the evil toxicity that spewed from everybody's news feeds, what was is not what always would be, for the future was not in evil's hands, or in gold's hands, or in greed's hands, or in who even knows whose hands. The future was in God's hands, and it was a future God would bring to God's own in God's own good time. Names began to be attached to the one who would bring God's promised future. Names like Messiah, Christ, Son of Man, Son of David, Son of God. Time passed, years passed, generations passed, and a Galilean rabbi began doing and saying the things he did do and say until the day came when he asked his followers, who, after all you've heard and seen, who do you say that I am? And ever the boldest and brashest of them, Simon Peter said, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, You are right, 
and upon faith like yours I will build my church. But first the time has come for me to tell you something. We're going to Jerusalem and when we get there I'll be killed. For I need to die in order to live. Peter said, no, you will not either. I won't allow it. Peter, in this moment, you see, had come to know who Jesus was, but he hadn't. Perhaps he didn't want to come to know what being who he was was needed to mean. He wanted Jesus to be glorious with glory the way the world defines glory. He did not yet understand Jesus came to be glorious with glory the way God's love for a sin-broken world defines glory. And Peter rebuked Jesus, and this is a strong word, as in, I don't want to hear any of that death nonsense coming out of your mouth ever again. Jesus then said to Peter, not today, Satan. You get the hell out of my way. And then according to our gospel reading today, six days passed. It's not an accident that Matthew mentions six days. Matthew, more than any of the gospel readers, knows his Old Testament and knows his readers know his Old Testament. Six days passing in our story just like it had passed in that story we heard with Moses earlier. And then remember what happened to Moses on the seventh day? The fiery cloud on the mountaintop spoke. On this seventh day, Matthew now tells us Jesus took Peter, who apparently had not been demoted, for his uh, six days earlier outburst, and also James and John up a mountaintop in Galilee where in a scene we can only imagine, um, I mean not even, it's a scene we can't even begin to imagine. Jesus was, our text says, transfigured before them. As in, he changed, I mean he way changed right in front of their eyes. His face started glowing with a glow that was like the glow of the sun. As in, I'm hearing Matthew say two things at least. First of all, his face was so bright it was actually painful. Could even be blinding if he stared at it too long because that's how it is with the sun. And two, because this is also how it is with the sun, as opposed to, for example, the moon, the light his face shone with was not light that shone down upon him to be reflected by him. This light, rather, was light that shone with brightness like the sun because somehow it came out from within him. For this bright, bright brightness somehow was him. The light was so bright, Matthew adds, it even made his clothes white and bright. Then this very holy, weird scene gets holier and weirder as they now suddenly see two more people there in the light with Jesus talking to him. And I do not know how they knew. Maybe it was from what they heard him talking about, but the disciples somehow knew or figured out that the two people talking to Jesus were Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets. Israel thought of their scriptures, the Old Testament, as the Law and the Prophets. Here they were. Then Peter said, Lord, it's good we're here. Why don't I build three booths or dwellings in honor of you and Moses and Elijah? But he didn't even finish the sentence before a cloud, a cloud that glowed in the dark, came down upon them. And they, all of them, absolutely knew their Old Testaments well enough to know what a shining cloud atop a mountain meant. 
God was in the house. So they didn't ask who it was. They knew who it was when this time, on this seventh day, the cloud talked to them. What it said was, this is my son. I love him. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus, the voice makes clear, is not the third member of a trio of equals. Moses, the law, and Elijah, the prophets, standing on equal ground with him. Jesus was the one whom all laws and all prophets had ultimately all along been preparing the world for. This is my son. The law and the prophets are what they are, and what they are is needed in this world turned from me. But this is my son. He's the one the world needs most of all. Listen to him. And Peter then, ever the first one to speak, didn't speak. None of them did. They instead fell to the ground terrified until a hand touched them. It does not say if they jumped out of their skins when the hand touched them. It just says that a touch touched each of them and the touch was the touch of Jesus who now said to them, don't be afraid. And they looked up and the cloud and Moses and Elijah were gone and they looked at his face and the blazingly bright as light as the sun was gone too. But they knew what they had seen. And knowing what they had seen, they now knew. Well, what did they now know, do you suppose? It's clear, as the story continues, it will become even clearer that they didn't yet know everything because everything wouldn't come clear until the other side of another mountain, a mount called Golgotha, which he would cloud climb without them, for they would run from him, a mount upon which he would be spiked to a cross with the light of the sun not then turned up but turned off. And the voice that would speak then, not the voice of God declaring his love for them, but the voice of him whom they loved, even though they'd run from him, crying out now in the dark, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what did they know then? And understand then of everything by then they had now seen, be it on the Mount of Transfiguration or also on the Mount of Crucifixion? Well, again, apparently it seems they knew and understood at that time not so much. Except they did know, most of them, ten of them, to stick around and to stick together. And together and around on the third day they would see. What they would see is that there's no dark, not even the darkest darkness there is, that being the darkness of sin and the darkness of sin's beloved, that being death. They would see on the third day that there's no dark. Finally they would know this. There's no dark dark enough to douse the light that he will shine with for forever, that being the light of God's mercy and God's grace and God's love. So, time passes. Years pass. Generations pass. And here you are. And he is God's son. And he is risen from the dead. And he is the one who did do what neither law nor prophets could do. He made you his own. And he is light. But until the day dawns when he, the great morning star, comes for all to see, the light he is and the light he shines with is light that 
can only shine for now in the dark. So, so don't run, don't hide, by all means don't fear. Listen to him. Listen to him. And then where it is dark, and where too surely the blind are leading the blind, shine with him. Amen.